This is the Christian Circle podcast and you're listening to Pamela Fernandez where we have conversations about Christian living. Here's the show. All right, uh my name's Charles Johnston and I'm a uh I'm a pretty fairly new Catholic, been Catholic for a few years now and uh I have a blog that I write at it now that I'm catholic.com and a Facebook page and I'm just trying to get out there and be part of the new evangelization. Today we're talking about uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori. This is the founder of the Redemptorist, correct? Yes, he's the founder of the Redemptorist. And uh, I was kind of excited about doing this one too, Alphonsus, because he's, you know, most of the saints that we've done I've known about pretty well, mm-hmm. you know, but doing this, doing this kind of monthly, we've been doing it monthly now for yeah. about a year, right? Yeah. Yeah, and just, it gives me an opportunity to really study some saints that I didn't really know as much about, but I, you know, I mean, everyone's heard of Teresa Blasseau, where we've done St. Paul or St. Augustine, all these different, but truthfully, St. Alphonsus, I really didn't know much about before I started studying about him. Okay. So, for this program, so I, I was pretty excited to be able to dig in and learn something about, you know, someone who's a pretty, he's a doctor of the church, <laughs> and a, a pretty well known, I mean. Had I been Catholic for more than a few years, I probably would have knew him. <laughs> I'd have come around to getting to know him, but I just hadn't yet, you know? Yeah. So this is a good opportunity for me to learn mm-hmm. along with everyone else. And you like him, I think, because he's kind of like an Aquinas too, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he is. He, uh, you know, he, his big thing was kind of catechizing poor people in Naples, you know, that really, mm-hmm. it was kind of like, the more I read about him, the more I was seeing in him, he was kind of engaging in the new evangelization of the 17th century and 18th century, you know? Yeah. Like, that's what St. Paul, John Paul II said, was that we needed a new evangelization because the world has been evangelized at this point. Not all of it, but I mean, the majority of it. But so many people's fallen away from the practice of the faith or fallen away from just faith in general mm-hmm. that we need to re-evangelize the culture. You know, yeah. and this was what was happening in his day and age, too, yeah. is there was a lot of people that had fallen away and he was engaging them and re-evangelizing them. Mm. So that really was, yeah, I, re- I was really impressed by that because I've seen in him a lot of John Paul II. Mm. How did he start? So he's, is he somewhat like Aquinas from an influential family? Yeah, he was from a, uh, he was from a noble family mm-hmm. and, uh, they were uh, it said they had fallen into somewhat poverty though his his like particular line of his family he was the oldest son and uh yeah so they were well off i mean back then you were either well off or you were poor so he he was in the well off category and uh he went to law school he was he trained to be a lawyer and he went to law school and uh said he he took the bar exam when he was like 16 years old so he was a pretty young that's pretty young for a lawyer. It's like that old TV show, Doogie Howser, remember? <laughs> the, the kid doctor. Yeah, but he was a uh, a lawyer for a while before he found his true calling mm. as a priest. So he's, an, he's a fairly intelligent guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, he's a doctor of the church, so yeah. that, <laughs> that would be a fair assessment. <laughs> okay. And so... He becomes a priest, and then he ends up being a bishop too, right? But he also mm-hmm. ends up fi- uh, finding his own order, which doesn't, which isn't very successful to begin with. 
Right. Well, I think we, you know, you got to go back and start at the beginning where he, uh, he became a priest. Mm. The reason was he, cause he was a pretty devout, you know, he was a devout person. He was, you know, a Catholic living in Naples back in the 1700s and he was, he was well-educated. So he was, he was devout and he found that as he got more into law and more, uh, I guess, famous for his abilities, cause allegedly he went eight years as a lawyer without ever losing a case. And so that would make you pretty much like the Johnny Cochran of his day, you know, and he was, you know, so he's like this rising legal star and he noticed that like looking back, you know, hindsight's 2020 that the going to the parties and being kind of the toast of the town and being this guy in the higher up social circles and everything, he kind of started neglecting his prayer life and he started neglecting his piety and all these different things. And then this shock came down that he lost a case mm, okay. and he lost this case. That was, uh, from what I've read about it, it was supposedly there was this piece of paper, you know, this document that had information on it that he just completely overlooked. Mm. It was something like basically a rookie mistake yeah. and he loses this case and it just completely shattered him. Mm. It destroyed him. And so he never ate for three days afterwards. Mm. And he was completely, and he said, looking back on it, he seen that God used this mm. to shake him and show him that this wasn't really the life for him. And he had this, he had this, uh, voice. He would go, one of his favorite things was he would go and he would visit these hospitals and like, kind of like, like a candy striper, I guess he would visit people in the hospitals and try to cheer them up and stuff. And he heard this voice while he was visiting people in the hospital that said, leave the world behind mm. and give yourself to me. And that was, he just, it was just like, it struck him like a bolt of lightning. And he went to a church and it said he laid down his sword. I don't know, I guess, I guess lawyers carried swords back then. But he laid down his sword at the altar of the church and just devoted himself. He said, I'm going to become a priest. And that was, he knew he was called. And so the thing I took from that, that was really like, you know, things happen in our lives mm-hmm. and you know, people try to cheer you up and say, you know, God closes the door and he opens a window or these different like little you know, little cliche sayings, but God really does have the best Mm. for you. And like we've talked about before, St. Augustine said that God only allows evil to exist in the world that a greater good may come from it. Mm. So for him, having his legal career destroyed was the greatest good because not only did he find what he was truly called for to be a priest, Mm. but now we have this great saint to look up to. You know, that we would have never knew, we wouldn't know Alphonsus Liguori if he became, if he was the greatest lawyer that Naples had ever seen. Mm. We wouldn't be talking about him today in 2018. Mm. You know, so that really, that kind of, that struck me when I read about that, that mm. he he knew that from looking back on it later on in his life, he realized that God completely broke him down at that point to remold him into the way he was supposed to be. And isn't that what would happen to everybody? I mean, uh, the fact that at some point of time, everybody does become a rising star in something or the other. And they completely forget about God. And when things are going well, we tend to forget about prayer and all those things until something breaks us down. (laughs) I mean, you just described my life. (laughs) Up until until the point when I really decided to get serious. Yeah, I guess it's everyone's life, but... Yeah, I mean, like, I prayed when, I would pray when my father had cancer, I prayed, Mm -hmm. and I prayed when uh, my child was in the hospital and Mm -hmm. sick, 
or if I was driving too fast in the freeway and I seen red and blue lights behind me, you know, those were the times that I prayed. But, you know, the TV flash, tornado warning in the middle in the middle of the night in the spring, then I would pray. But apart from that, you know, you didn't pray. I didn't pray in the good times. It wasn't the good times when I prayed. It was only the bad times. And it really does take sometimes a shock to the system. And that's the thing is if you have the grace of God, I mean, everyone's given the grace, enough grace to come to God. And we, we believe that without the grace of God, we can't convert to God because we're not Pelagians. Yeah. But also we believe that God gives that grace to everyone if we accept it. And so it's, it's a grace to see that in the mirror, you know, in hindsight and say, like, oh, that's the moment where God was breaking me down to remold me into something else, mm. you know, because yeah. if not, if you don't see that, then you become bitter and like, why did this happen to me? Yes, yes. And that's the two paths you can take. Yeah. And then there's indifferent too. I guess there's three paths. There's indifferent just where it's like, well, whatever, yeah. everything, you know, vanity of vanities, like Solomon was towards the end of his life. Mm. You know, everything's just, you know, you're here one minute, gone the next and everything. Nothing really means anything. You can kind of become a fatalist yeah. or you can become bitter or you can see that this is what God was doing in my life. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, Alphonse has seen it. That's what we need to pray to be able to see it in our own lives. Because it does happen. Every one of us has that moment where, you know, yeah. things don't go according to plan. I'm glad you mentioned it because a lot of times if you don't accept that grace, then you go mm-hmm. the other way and you. there are people who even leave the church who mm-hmm. give up on, on Christ. But that's the moment I think you hunker down and, and root yourself further, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to people that, like, they'll say to me, how do you believe in God? Like, how can you possibly... I've actually talked to people that I grew up a Christian, I grew up, you know, a Catholic or a Pentecostal or whatever, but I don't believe anymore. And well, why don't you believe? Well, my child died of cancer. And then what do you say to that person? Mm-hmm. I mean, I have no words mm-hmm. that can comfort them. Or my child died in a car wreck. I can't, there's nothing I can say to you, but you need to know that God only allows things to happen for a greater good to come from it. Mm. You know, like I was just reading in the newspaper the other day, not the newspaper, in the, I'm a Catholic newspaper, mm. <laughs> wasn't a secular newspaper, uh, that there's this uh, this kid from Italy who's mm. uh, being beatified. Mm. He was like 15 years old, a computer kid, and like the things that he said about his sickness, he had leukemia and he died. Mm. And what a great example of faith he was, you know, and his parents might at the time thought, you know, why did our child took from us? But what a beautiful witness he is mm-hmm. to the grace of God, you know, so I don't have answers for people like that, but God does. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. You're turning away from the one person who has the answer. Mm-hmm. I don't have the answer, but yeah, it can cause you to become bitter. But if you, if you allow God to work in your life, you can see the, the good that comes of these things. So even without knowing, we've actually covered one um, some lessons from from uh, Saint Alphonsus' life. We've not even begun with his life. I mean, as a... <laughs> yeah, that's right at the beginning. That's I think that's the biggest lesson right there. <laughs> right at the beginning, don't you know? Allow when God does something like that in your life, see for see it for what it is. Yeah. Yeah, but we're only right at the beginning. He just, that's, uh, I think he was only like 26 or 27 years old, and he decides to become a priest. And he wanted to become a priest at this place called the Oratory, which, uh, you know, these priests kind of lived in community and stuff. And his father was absolutely against it, wouldn't allow it. 
So he come to a compromise with his father and with his confessor mm -hmm. to become a priest, but he would become a priest, just a regular, like a diocesan priest mm -hmm. and uh, live at home. Mm -hmm. So he went back to Naples to live with his father and he became a priest and he ended up living amongst the poor because he was so you know, struck by the plight of the poor mm -hmm. and the fact that there was no one, there wasn't really any priests that were ministering, bringing them the sacraments and teaching them the good news, you know, the gospel, just kind of catechizing them, evangelizing them. And this is where he was hit with the idea that he needed to really engage in this, you know, like I said, the 18th century new evangelization. You know, because it's been going on since the day, you know, St. Paul evangelized most of Europe, a lot of Europe, not most of Europe. And then it's always come that throughout the years, there's always been these men that have rose up to re-evangelize. You know, you got the St. Francis of Assisi, St. Dominic, Alphonsus Liguori, you know, you've got all the St. Francis de Sales. Mm -hmm. You have all these men that have come around mm -hmm. and had to re-evangelize because people fall away. Just like the, you know, the parable of the sower and the seeds, where some seeds fall on rocky soil, some seeds fall on thorny, amongst the thorns, some fall on the path. So there always has to be someone out there spreading new seed, mm -hmm. basically. And that's what he went he set himself to do is to re-evangelize these, you know, the poor people that really needed to hear the good news. And a lot of it too was at the time there was this heresy called Jansenism mm. that, uh, I think we talked about before on the, uh, St. Therese of Lisieux that in the, uh, 17 and 1800s in France, especially, but also in Italy, they, uh, they had this Jansenist heresy, which was basically like Catholic Calvinism, mm. you know? where God was angry with you and he was really looking to punish somebody. Mm. God was like, you know, an angry uh, tyrant that was going up and down looking to punish someone mm. and don't get yourself caught in God's crosshairs, basically. Mm. And these people and the poor people, he said that the poor people in the slums and everything had only ever heard really that you need to go to church and receive the sacraments mm. because if not, God's really just waiting there to send you to hell. God's just waiting for you to do something wrong so he can send you to hell. Mm. And he said that they'd never really been preached the good news. Mm. They had heard that they need the sacraments and they had heard that they need to receive God's grace, but they never were told the good news. And the good news is that God became man to die for us, to bridge the gap between sin and God, you know, bridge that gap created by sin between us and God mm. so that we could live with him forever in heaven. You know, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Mm. And they'd only ever heard kind of this angry version of the good news. Mm. So he really set himself to preaching the good news. And they said that his he would give such good spiritual direction in the confessional. that they, There was like hour-long lines, two-hour-long lines, mm. just to have him hear your confession. Mm. You know, and all kinds of pardoned sinners that hadn't been in confession in years and enemies came friends and people spoke again and people you know, kind of soften their hearts because they heard that this wasn't just this, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God type, mm. type thing. Mm. This is a God that loves us, that gave his life for us. And this is, this is a gift that's being offered to you. It isn't a take it or else. Mm. It's please accept this gift, you know? Mm. And so that was really his charism and that's, that carried through to the, the order that he founded, the Redemptorist. Actually, there are a lot of people even today who still believe that. I mean, some of the older generations, I think, have still have this idea of a punishing God. And there mm -hmm. are many people currently who still have this idea that if we don't do X, 
God will do why to us. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. God loves us for who we are, not for what we do, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the thing that, like, when Paul would preach, that's what was so revolutionary, too, about when Paul would preach, because we all had kind of this pagan mindset. Because, mm. you know, the Roman the Roman pagan system was there's these gods that live, you know, the Greek system was these gods that live up on, you know, Mount Olympus. And they're just really waiting for you to mess up so they can strike you with a lightning bolt or something, yeah. you know. And they would, and their interactions with man. If you read like the Greek myths and stuff, oh the interactions with mankind was always them coming down to take advantage of mankind. Yeah, right. you know, like one of the gods would come down from Olympus and steal someone's wife and have a baby with her, yeah. you know, something like that. It was always or like tricking them into doing things or all these. Are, they never really had an experience of no, that's not, you know, God created everything god loves us and god wants us to be with him and because of the the stain of original sin that's upon us we need and also our actual sins that we commit we need some sort of reconciliation between us and an all just god it isn't because god's looking to punish us it isn't because god wants to take out his wrath upon somebody or really is just waiting for his mess up God wants a relationship with us, and to to fix this broken relationship that was broken by sin, he became man and gave his life for us as a sacrifice on the cross. You know, it was a, it was a sacrifice of love, and it wasn't, you know, like this penal substitution idea where God put the punishment of our sins upon Jesus, because for God to punish Jesus, who is God, so he'd be punishing himself on our behalf, Jesus is a hundred percent just and holy person that didn't commit any actual sin. Mm-hmm. So to intentionally inflict pain, punishment, and death upon some, that would make God a tyrant, mm-hmm. you know. And God isn't. God is love. God is love, mm-hmm. as it says. You know, it says in First John, God is love. So because of love, He created us because he, love wants something to love and to love Him in return. So He created us out of love, mm-hmm. and. With that same love, he came down because God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. You know, that's uh, John three sixteen. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And because of love, Jesus came to earth, became man, and died as a love offering to reconcile us with God. It isn't because of punishment. It's because of love. And that's a gift that's given to everyone. You know, it's, it's, it's there on the table. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is accept it. But it's not... It's not like a, I'm really wanting you not to accept it so that I can send you to hell. You know, that's this idea that we have, a lot of people have, and carries over from that kind of Greco-Roman worldview mm-hmm. of the gods are just out to get us. God's not out to get us. God wants this relationship with us. He he literally come, you know, went across heaven and earth <laughs> to come across the universe to earth to, you know what I mean, like from heaven to build this relationship. So it isn't... He's not looking for us to mess up. He's not looking to send us to hell. To go to hell, you have to really make that choice yourself to reject this gift that God gives. That's what when C.S. Lewis talked about, he wrote a book, The Great Divorce, mm-hmm. about you know people, this journey from hell to heaven. And it's it's basically that hell has a door that's locked from the inside. But the people that are in hell, you know, and the church doesn't even say that anyone is actually in hell. We believe hell exists, mm-hmm. and we believe that if you die in a state of mortal sin, you'll go to hell. But we don't have, you know, the church, not me personally, but the church doesn't say that anyone's particularly in hell because yeah. we're not God. We don't get to make that judgment. Yeah. 
know, we hold out hope that all people will be saved, but we know that if, uh, you know, according to the, the terms that God laid out, and now we're bound by those terms, but he's not. So he can act outside them if he chooses. But going to hell is you're choosing to separate yourself from God for all eternity. You know, you, that's your choice. Because the gift that's given you is communion with God for all eternity through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So, I mean, that isn't, and that is a lot of people have that misconception. I don't know, I don't know where it comes from besides paganism, you know, that we got to keep the gods satisfied or else they'll kill us. Because that was the whole point. The, the point of Israeli, the Israelites, their sacrifice was to make reparations to God because God was justice, love, and goodness. And so you were supposed to stay in a right relationship with him. So they had, you know, because it was a progressive revelation over time. God didn't start out telling them everything right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It was slowly over time that he built this revelation all the way up until Jesus Christ gives us the fullness of revelation. But it wasn't, it wasn't the same as the pagan sacrifices. That was just basically kind of like, you know, giving a bribe to a corrupt official in like some country, you know, <laughs> you know like giving a bribe to someone so that they won't arrest you at a checkpoint on the freeway. That's kind of like the way the, the Romans were doing with their gods. And the Israelites was different, and the Jews were different, and that's what we're different. We have a different relationship because we have a loving God who loves us. So I think people really need to get out of that mindset that God is looking to punish. God isn't looking to punish. God wants love, wants communion, wants relationship. And it's basically, he's got this outstretched hand. It's like, you ever see the... The ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. It's, yeah, he's reaching with all he can, and Adam's just kind of like barely got his hand up. Like, you know, if you can reach <laughs> down here to me, that's fine. But <laughs> I'm not making any effort on my behalf. But that's what it is. God's reaching. He reached so, so far that he was born in Bethlehem. You know, like that's the ultimate reaching down to earth. He was born, and, you know, Paul St. Paul said, though he had a quality with God, it wasn't something to be grasp at he emptied himself took on the form of a slave and was born a man and you know was obedient to death even death on a cross so i mean that was that's how much god wants a relationship with us that's the, the lengths he was willing to go to all we have to do is say yes saint alphonsus then says yes to being with the poor and being a priest yeah i kind of went off on a tangent there <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You know, this is such an important message that he, yeah. and this was the message that he didn't hear people being told. And so he, he dedicated his life to get, and that's the redemptorists I, who I hadn't really, I had heard of them, but I didn't really know what their charism was, well, you know. They're good at preaching. You should go to one of their they're, retreats. They're awesome. This is what I found out. Yeah. Is they give, this is what they do is they give parish <laughs> retreats for people to have relationships with God. Like that's. That's like right written into their charter. Yeah, I, I need to find one around me. You know, even their confessions are awesome. Like, uh, if they yeah. parish, each person gets a 30-minute confession. When I went the first time, I thought, 30 minutes? What am I going to talk about for 30 minutes? But when you're there, you realize how much, like, they go into detail about the root of why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, I like that when you get a, when you give confession. And uh, there's a place that I go to confession a lot at the Newman Center. Mm -hmm. And uh, the priest there, Father De Palma, he gives pretty good advice. You can just walk in with one sin. He'll give you a 10-minute long, you know, like <laughs> what it is, where it is it's coming from, and you know what's the root of it and all that. It's pretty good. What else uh, about the 
uh, about the charism or about his writing. Oh yeah, his writing. Yeah, he he literally wrote the book on moral theology. <laughs> Yeah. That's his most famous book is called Moral Theology. Yeah. And he's uh he's the doctor of like that's what his he was a doctor of the church. He was declared a doctor of the church in I wanna say eighteen I think it was eighteen seventy one I read. Yeah. And uh he was declared the doctor of moral theology, whereas like Saint Thomas Aquinas is the doctor of dogmatic theology. Mm-hmm. So the difference being uh Dogmatic theology is basically what we believe. You know, it's kind of a systematic breakdown of exactly what we believe. And that's, if you want to see, like, you know, dogmatic theology par excellence is the Summa Theologica. But uh, he wrote about moral theology, which is less about exactly what we should believe and more about how we should act, how we should behave, how, what, you know, what's moral and ethical behavior, basically, for a Christian. And that's what his... Uh, one of his main focuses is that, and he had a very strong Marian devotion too. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot about uh, wrote a lot about the Blessed Mother, and I read that he wrote over I think 111 books. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty it's a pretty massive library. He uh, since we're doing this month on uh, temptations, what is uh, Saint Alphonsus's direction on uh, dealing with temptation, sin, and being on the morally right path? Well, he, he himself suffered from uh, scruples, you know, scrupulosity, mm-hmm. and he thought that uh, <clears throat> it can be a gift at first, mm-hmm. scrupulosity, because it really points out what, you know, what you're doing that's wrong and what's going on, you know, uh, it really points to your faults, basically, mm-hmm. and, but his, you know, his was just, his advice was always just, you know, to stay in prayer, especially before the Blessed Sacrament, he said, uh, you'll achieve more spiritual growth. I can't remember the exact quote, but basically you'll achieve more spiritual growth with 15 minutes in front of the blessed sacrament than you will in hours of any other kind of prayer. Mm. And so that was his, his go-to advice was, you know, Eucharistic adoration, spend some time before the blessed sacrament in the presence of Jesus. Uh, I also read that um, he advised people, um, especially who asked about overcoming sin, to flee from it. Um, so, in case people are wondering, if you're battling anything, maybe you should read some of uh, St. Alphonsus' uh, books on moral theology, and so you understand what is happening, why it is happening, and then work on it. I actually, yeah, I just remembered. I uh, I went, that same priest I was telling you about, Father De Palma, mm-hmm. he done a, uh, kind of like a, uh, it was like a mini retreat, you know, like a four hours on a Tuesday night. A couple of years ago, and it was uh, it was on Alphonsus Liguori's stages of sin, mm, okay. and it was basically he diagnosed sin as like uh, the way you would like cancer. Mm-hmm. So like stage one is basically get infected by it, and stage two it metastasizes, mm. and stage three it becomes terminal. You know, and if you don't, if you don't, that, that when you said that flee from sin. Mm-hmm. He said, if you don't flee from your sin, you're going to die in your sin. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to become hardened to it. And it's, you see that with, uh, you know, sin darkens the intellect and it lowers our will. You know, we know that that original sin does that in concupiscence is, a, you know, the effect of original sin. But sin itself, even venial sin, that's why you only, you only have to confess mortal sin. Mm-hmm. 
like must confess mortal sin. But venial sin should be confessed too because venial sin kind of builds up like plaque on the tooth becomes tartar <laughs> and then builds up and then, you know, forms cavities. And so venial sins committed over time, build and build and build. And that's what Father De Palma said that even venial sin. So even if you're not doing something that's a mortal sin, but you're doing something that's a venial sin and you just let it build over time and you don't confess it, you don't run from it. You allow it to remain in your life. It builds and builds and builds. And eventually it becomes malignant. It crosses that line from being a venial sin to, being a mortal sin like you might engage in gossip and you think it's okay and it's just gossip and isn't and it's not a mortal sin it's just you know light-hearted but then it gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse. and next thing you know you're spreading rumors about a co-worker that you know is not true you know and you're damaging their reputation and you know the tongue has the power to kill and to say you know to damage someone's reputation is technically falls into the fifth commandment not to kill if you intentionally inflict damage upon someone's reputation if it's serious and if it's grave that can be a mortal sin. So, you know, it builds and it becomes malignant. And if you don't excise it, if you don't cut it out of your life, it goes, like I said, it metastasizes, it goes all through your system. And next thing you know, you become hardened in your sin and you don't even realize it's sin anymore. You know, like there's things in my life that now that I, you know, I go to confession all the time, I've, I've noticed these things. I don't even like going and seeing like an R-rated movie. I won't go see R-rated movies anymore mm -hmm. because every time like the characters on screen, when they curse, it's like, it's like nails on a chalkboard, you know, mm -hmm. it goes right through me. And I, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be around that. Mm -hmm. But before, you know, I could go see a marathon of Goodfellas and it wouldn't bother me, yeah. you know? So, and it's, so it's kind of the backwards, it's kind of working backwards down the, the progression of sin. So mm -hmm. it's basically I'm taking spiritual chemo by going to uh, confession all the time and, you know, trying to live the moral life. But that's what, yeah, that, I forgot completely about that until you said flee from your sin. It's like it triggered a light bulb <laughs> in my head that that talk that I went to, it was a long, you know, it was about two hours and then a break and then like another hour and a half, but it was really good. Can you just tell people what is a mortal sin and what is a venial sin? Because I don't think a right. lot would really know. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, well, any sin is... Uh, so God is all holy and just. So anything that inflicts any kind of injustice upon anything in the world really is a sin. You know, like there's... Like, people say like there's victimless crimes, you know. Like never mind... You know, you hear that all the time in like in the civil in civil debates and stuff. Like they know they legalize prostitution, you yeah. know, in certain places in America, and it's a victimless crime. Well, yeah, because it's two adults that are engaged in consenting behavior and stuff for money. But really, it's not victimless because you're you're denigrating the dignity of somebody who's made yeah. in the image and likeness of God. So you're sinning, you know. And whether the person's a Christian or not, they recognize that there's something wrong about this. But that's one of the, like the major ones, you know. And everyone knows, like even St. Paul said that where there is no law, you're guided by your conscience. And, you know, yeah. there's this light of human reason, natural light of human reason that everyone in every society in the world knows that murder is wrong, yeah. you know, because that's placed in our hearts. It's natural law. So any, any, any time we miss the mark of what is right and just and holy, so it can be a sin of omission or a yeah. sin of commission, you know, yeah. so you could see someone's begging for help and you don't help them. Yeah. That's a sin of omission. You didn't do something that you should have done. So that's anything like that's a sin. But to be mortal, because in First John it says, 
that if someone's sin, you know, pray for them and the, the prayers of a righteous man, they'll raise them up. But if they committed a sin that's deadly, you know, he said, I don't tell you to pray for them. But basically, they need to go to confession. <laughs> they, to get rid of a mortal sin, we need to go to confession and be absolved. And a mortal sin has to have three, uh, I don't know what you call it, markers, I guess. It has to be grave matter. So it has to be something that's really serious. You know, it has to be a serious situation. It can't be, you know, you accidentally took a crayon from the yeah. restaurant that gave the kids crayons with their, you know, color, the kids menu. You accidentally stole a crayon. That is mortal sin. It's not, it's not grave matter. It has to be grave matter. It has to be done with full consciousness of the will. So you have to know this is grave matter and what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it has to be done with full, it has to be done with full knowledge. Mm. So it's full knowledge. So you know fully well that, you know, like I said, murder is a good one because everyone knows murder is wrong. Mm. Killing another human is wrong. So that's full knowledge that you know it's wrong. It's grave matter because it's a person and you're doing with full consent of the will. So you're not being coerced. You're not, you know, incapacitated in any way. So someone that has like a, a mental handicap or something wouldn't really necessarily be guilty of a mortal sin because they don't have that full consent of the will or someone that's being coerced. You know, someone puts a gun in your hand and makes you pull the trigger. Mm. You know, that's not necessarily, it, it lessens your culpability. So that's really what a mortal sin is, is grave matter, full consent of the will and full knowledge. So that's because of that, it's impossible to accidentally commit a mortal sin. Mm, You know, if you don't know if something, is this a mortal sin or it's not, I was told this by a priest. Mm. If you ever have to stop and think, is this mortal or isn't after you commit, if you're doing it beforehand, (laughs) then you're calculating that it's kind of premeditated, you know? But afterwards, if you look back on something and say, was that mortal or wasn't it mortal? I don't know. Well, then it wasn't because you, you didn't have full knowledge, Mm. but you should confess it anyway. Cause like I said, you know, sins build up and they become malignant over time. Mm. So you definitely have to get rid of them. But, uh, yeah, that's the difference between mortal and venial sin. So all sin is venial unless it meets them three criteria. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing about mortal sin. Venial sin wounds our relationship with God. Mm. You know, it, it kind of, it, it, it injures our relationship, but it doesn't, it doesn't kill the, you know, the divine supernatural grace that's in our soul, but mortal sin does. Mm-hmm. And that's why in first John, it's called deadly. You know, it's also called deadly sins mm-hmm. because it kills that divine life that's in us. And even with venial sins, as you, I think as you keep repeat, keep repeating them, um, mm-hmm. You will find yourself uh, justifying what you've done, and slowly you will realize that you didn't even realize when you have now been stuck with something mortal, and you feel right. okay. It's okay with your conscience. The, the spirit right. suddenly. That yeah. I mean that's what we you know we talk all the time in Catholicism. People talk all the time about conscience. You know you got to obey your conscience, and you got to. But you're supposed to have a well-formed conscience. Yeah. You know, that's the thing is people, you're supposed to obey your well-formed conscience. And if your conscience, if, if your intellect is darkened and your desires, you know, if over time because of venial sin, then your conscience isn't really well-formed. You know, my conscience, you know, like I said before, my, my conversion experience, everything wouldn't have been a well-formed conscience because I thought, you know, anything goes. 
So my conscience wouldn't convict me if I'd done certain things. And now, you know, if I yell at someone in traffic, next thing you know, I'm right down to church going to confession. But I yelled at someone in traffic. Whereas before, you know, I would scream out the window and everything. And it wouldn't, like, what? It's just, you know, it's just the way I drive. It isn't, you know, you, you see things more. Differently. When you see things differently in a different light, when you have a well-formed conscience, you know, and there's certain people that, you know, have different things and they don't like doing this. They don't like doing that. And mm -hmm. they kind of really set themselves like ascetics, you know, mm -hmm. and they won't even have like a TV in their house or so. So I'm not there yet. I still watch television, <laughs> but it has, it's like my eyes have been opened mm -hmm. to, you know, this the, the kind of the, degener the degeneracy around us. Whereas before, it was just a world that I lived in and I didn't really yeah. let it bother me. Now, I try to kind of set myself outside of that world. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. Yeah. And, and the Holy Spirit shows you, like, lights up certain things. Uh, as uh -huh. like, it's not an overnight thing where you suddenly become sinless, right? It's a gradual. No. Yeah. I mean, the last sinless person, we put him on a cross. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, you're not going to become sinless. You're still going to sin. The Pope goes to confession daily or weekly. But, uh, yeah, it's that uh, Fulton Sheen said that hearing confession of nuns is like being stoned to death with popcorn. Mm. No, that, was, <laughs> that was what they're, you know, like petty little things, I guess. Like one got angry at the other over dinner or something. I don't know. I don't know what nuns would have to confess. But <laughs> I'd imagine it would be pretty light. But, uh, yeah, that's... You know, the Holy Spirit does kind of illuminate where you need to grow and shows you things like this isn't right. You know, you really need to cut this out. And that's what, uh, you know, that the cancer analogy was great because you really do need to excise them things from your life or else they are going to go malignant. They are going to spread. They're going to, you know, take hold of you. Anything you do over time. And my grandfather used to always tell me is you don't negotiate with the devil, mm. you know. When he's he's a master negotiator and you're not, you know. So if you feel tempted to do something, you say, "Well, I'll just do it this one time," or you know, it's not gonna kill me or whatever. And it doesn't matter what it is; it could be anything. It could be petty theft. It could be, you know, adultery. It could be murder. It could be whatever. Don't if you feel that temptation, don't start negotiating for how far you're gonna go because you're gonna lose. Don't negotiate. Just say no. Just stop. And the best thing, the best thing I found, if you're being tempted for something, whatever it is, pray. And that's what every priest will tell you in the confessional. When you feel tempted, stop. Say, you know, kind of assess your situation. Look at where you're at and say in our father, say hail Mary, you know, yeah. just pray, a, you know, contemporaneous prayer, whatever, just you know, you gotta arrest the situation, you gotta stop mm -hmm. and you have to retreat back into your, you know, your interior castle. You have to get back inside a prayerful attitude because if you start negotiating with, well, I'll just do it this one time and then I'll go to confession afterwards or I'll do this or you're not going to win that battle. You're not going to win that negotiation. The devil's going to clean you, you know, <laughs> take it to the bank. Actually, you, anybody who's interested can read the, the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis and you'll yeah. the devil works. Yeah, know exactly how it works. Uh, another thing, um, 
it's good you mentioned prayer because he also says that without the grace of God, you can't do anything. No, yeah. Especially with temptation, if you do not approach God, whether it's a retreat, whether it's the confession, whether it's prayer, you're not going to win whatever this is, whatever battle no. you're Yeah, without, without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. Yeah. You know, and that's true. Without, you know, because we're not Pelagians, like I said earlier, we're, we we need the grace of God to be able to do anything, really. Even just to convert, yeah. we need the grace of God pulling at our heart to do that. And yeah, without God, you're not going to be able to resist temptations. You know, you're just going to eventually give in. You might battle it for a while, but you'll eventually give in to it. And then you do it a little bit, you do it a lot. And next thing you know, it's a spiritual addiction, whatever, whatever temptation happened to be. So we've actually done a couple of episodes on attending a, a spiritual retreat and overcoming temptations. But uh, mm. from your own personal experience, what are the three things that you would say people should do? I mean, you've already mentioned prayer, but right. uh, do when they're tempted. Uh, I think identify it is, you know, one of the, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you're Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. the first thing they do uh, I don't know the 12 steps, but I know the first step is admitting you have a problem, yeah. you know, and same with the spiritual life. You know, if, if whatever your whatever your baggage happens to be, admit it. And the way you admit it as a Catholic is you go sit in the box with a priest and you say, listen, Father, I have a problem with you know, whatever, whatever your problem happens to be. <laughs> I'm a kleptomaniac, you know, or. Or I set fire to things, whatever it is. You admit that to the priest, and you tell them, "I have a problem," and we all have a problem. Like we might not see that. Like I always had a problem with anger. That was my big. I had road rage issues and everything. You know, like fighting people on the side of the road. <laughs> but I had a bad problem with my temper. I would fly off the handle at the at the slightest thing, and I would be mad. And I would dwell on it and I would think like, well, this person said this to me mm. and a year later, I'd find myself thinking about an argument that I had, you know, like be in the shower and think like, oh yeah. And when we had this argument and just kind of rehashing things in my head mm-hmm. and that isn't healthy, first off, man, you know, mentally it's not healthy, but also it's, it's damaging spiritually because you're dwelling on anger mm-hmm. and anger isn't itself bad. It's one of the passions, you know, it's, it's like anything else. But anger brought to the extreme is a sin. You know, if you dwell on anger, it is a sin. To get angry at something, if like, you know, if someone hit your child and you got angry, you know, that's not a sin. But then if two years later you're thinking how you're going to plot revenge on this person, that is a sin. So you have to admit that. And I, you know, admitted to the priest, say, listen, Father, I have a problem with anger. I've never really, you know, like, I've never gone so far as to really get in trouble with it. But I dwell on it, you know, I think about it. And I, and so that's the first, I'd say step one, admit you have a problem. Uh, step two would be prayer, you know, definitely prayer. And then I, I guess step three would just be when you feel it coming on, because you, you recognize it, you know, like whatever your vice happens to be. If you were an alcoholic, don't go to a sports bar to watch a game. You know, it's just, it's, it's obvious things. If you have anger issues, don't put yourself in situations where people... Re- so I've noticed that like when I'm driving now and someone cuts me off and stuff, I just think, like, 
you know, that maybe that person's having a bad day and they're trying to get somewhere. You know, they blow the horn at me. I wave at them. Say, God bless you. You know, <laughs> things like that. Like I have to take active measures basically that I don't, or, you know, if I'm, you know, working and someone really, you know, cause I deal with customers all day long cause I, I own my own business. And so sometimes it's like they're trying to push your buttons. You know, yeah. it's like people's going out of their way. I don't know if they get a kick out of it or what. And I just have to stop and tell myself, no, I'm not going to get angry here because that's what a priest, I can't remember where it was. I went to confession the one time and said, you know, this customer actually, she drove me so crazy that I considered just completely quitting and everything and walking away. And he said, don't, you know, you get mad and you dwell on it and all that. And she goes about her day and yeah. 10 minutes later, she doesn't even remember that she made you so angry you considered murdering her. <laughs> you know, like you thoughts of murder entered your head and 10 minutes later, she's at the grocery store buying dinner. Like, and you're, and here you are at the confessional three days later because she made you that angry and she's, you know, she went about her day. So you have to, you know, that's the thing you have to realize. You admit you have a problem. And then when you feel it coming on, you pray, but you also have to don't put yourself in situations where, you know, you get that whatever, you know, if, if you have problems with lust, don't go hang out at the beach. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's easy enough to really identify what your problem is and then just avoid it. So I don't, I don't even watch political talk shows anymore. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the, I just can't do it. I can't, it, it makes me next thing you know, I'm, I'm back at the confessional. I'm like, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I, you know, I watched Hannity last night and just mm-hmm. <laughs> put my blood pressure up 10 points. Even being on social media now has kind of the same Yeah, thing. yeah, I know. So much of rubbish and just so much of stuff that you don't want to see and, and hear, but you, it's in your feed and you can't help it. You don't know how many times I post a tweet and then immediately delete it or yeah. <laughs> make a comment on Facebook because it's just, you know, the left, you know, the right and... Catholics and non-Catholics yelling at each other and, you know, like atheists yelling at us and us yelling back. And, and it really doesn't, it's, there's no, like social media is, I don't know, it seems like a giant echo chamber, yeah. you know, and you're just, you're screaming into the wind. It really is. It's the 21st century Don Quixote, you know, you're tilting at windmills. Yeah, I have to, I have to put a, I put a buffer on myself on social media all the time. You don't know how many times I've went to comment on a story and say, nope, that's not Christ-like. No. Yeah, after, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to be salt and light in the world. You know, we're <laughs> called to be salt and light, and this is definitely vinegar. So I have to, I have to erase that. Yeah, I've put major buffers on myself on social media. That's a definite, that's a minefield. You have to tread carefully. Yeah. I'm actually beginning to think I should quit it. Completely, because I've seen, like, on Twitter, even the things I like, I mean, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I shouldn't be doing this, but then yeah. I'm <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, I have kind of mixed feelings on it, because, you know, it is such a great medium, social media, to share the gospel with people, and to, you know, like I said, salt and light, we're called to be salt and light, and everyone's on there, you know, a billion people around the world are on, so, so I think it's a great place to... Cause I share a lot of the, like the blog posts that I write and stuff and it, it gets read by people in Myanmar and yeah. in, you know, I, most of my readers are from the Philippines. Wow. And so this is like, I wouldn't be able to reach these people without, cause I don't know anyone from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be able to reach these people 
and I, I get a lot of readers too from Arab countries. Wow. So, you know, like Qatar and uh, Oman and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. So I don't even know, like, are they just coming on for, you know, just to see like what the Christians believe or is this people actually searching and seeking? I don't know. But without social media, I wouldn't be able to reach them. So there's a good side to it, but then there's also a bad side to it. You know, the internet itself, just never mind social media, is, has such great potential to reach the entire world with the gospel. But it also has sex trafficking and internet gambling and like so yeah. I mean there's there's both sides of the coin. And you gotta I guess you gotta take the good with the bad and just don't engage in don't engage in their behavior, I guess. Like I said, it's a minefield. You just gotta walk carefully. So anybody who's interested in joining the Redemptorists, um, uh, since I make this on every every month's podcast, uh, anyone who's uh, considering a vocation, you can consider the Redemptorist this month. Um, mm-hmm. Anything else that you want to share about Saint Alphonsus? Uh, yeah, he was uh, one of the things I liked about him. One of the many things I've liked after learning about him was uh, when he was appointed as a bishop, he initially said no several times. He didn't want to be a bishop. He didn't want the limelight. So he had, how much had he removed himself from that kind of seeking glory for himself that even when it was being given to him as part of his vocation, he didn't want it. You know, he was a, he was adverse to glory and recognition and stuff. And I thought that was a, a great testament to his character. Who would want to refuse that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd love to be a bishop. I'd start whipping things into order. <laughs> I'd really... I have all kinds of reforms in my head. No, I'm just kidding. 